Wan Nataprila with his Shura's Suta, the Drocht of March hath pierced to the Ruta, and bathed every vein in switch liqueur, of which virtue engendered is the fleur. Welcome to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer, a podcast series that offers the beginner an insight into the life and times of English writer Geoffrey Chaucer and why his most notable work, The Canterbury Tales, still has relevance today. My name is Karen Carey, and I'll be chatting with Marion Turner, the J.R.R. Tolkien Professor of English Literature and Language here at the University of Oxford. In this episode, we talked to Professor Marion Turner about what life was like in the 14th century when Geoffrey Chaucer lived and worked, and a bit about the man himself and what were his influence. So, Marion, can you just give me a brief overview of what England was like at that time? Yes, absolutely. So, Geoffrey Chaucer was born in around 1342. We don't know exactly the date. And he died in 1400. So, the 14th century was a really extraordinary time in European and global history. And the main reason for that is that the Black Death hit. So, the plague came to England in about 1348. And this was a pandemic completely different to the pandemic that we've experienced and lived through. This was a pandemic that killed maybe a half of the population, certainly a third, maybe up to a half. And it also hit different ages um, equally. So young people were as affected as older people. This had raged across Asia, across Europe. So really the effects of this are very hard to imagine what it must be like to see that kind of amount of people being wiped out and it caused enormous social change so not only do we think about the the psychological effects of seeing so many people die but for the people who survived their lives got financially better because if you think about the the situation somewhere like England there was the same amount of land to farm but maybe half the number of people to do it so the effect was that wages went up People could demand higher wages. There was more social mobility. More people moved to towns to try out different jobs because the working classes were more in demand. So we see laws being passed to try to limit what kinds of clothes people could wear, for example. So to say, because people were worried that people that had been born in lower realms of society were now wearing more elaborate furs because they'd made more money. So there was an anxiety about this, the breakdown of of social hierarchy in various ways. So that's the back, one of the important backdrops to Chaucer's whole life. You know, he was only about six when the plague came. And his parents, in fact, inherited a lot of land and property from relatives who died during the plague. So that's one really important context. In England, um, when Chaucer was born, Edward III was on the throne. And then after Edward III, Richard II. And then just the year before Chaucer died, Henry IV came to the throne, having usurped the throne, killed his cousin and, and usurped the throne. And across the these you know nearly sixty years of Chaucer's life, the whole time the Hundred Years' War was raging. So that was the war between England and France, which kept you know in tediously um, kind of incremental ways moving forwards and backwards as land was gained and lost. There were successful campaigns. There were hostages. At one point, the King of France was a hostage in England, um, and then a huge ransom was paid and he was returned. So there was this conflict with um, with France going on across the whole time, but in, in fits and starts. At times, there was there were long treaties and truces and so on with France. One thing that people often assume is that. 
at this kind of period in the medieval area a long, long time ago, that people didn't travel much, that it was a very kind of inward looking um, time where people were, were only looking at their own local community. And while that is to some extent true of the poor, it certainly wasn't true of Chaucer's class. And I'll talk more about Chaucer, the person in a moment. But there was in fact a lot of travel and even global exchange. So in Chaucer's time, trade was going on right across the known world. And by the known world at that time, I mean Europe, Africa and Asia are all closely connected. North Africa much more than sub-Saharan Africa, but Europe, particularly North Africa and right across Asia. So in Chaucer's time, you could buy spices in London that come from as far away as Indonesia, for example. So this was an era of global connectivity where spices and fabrics were coming to England from a long way away. English wool was being sent out around the world. It was also for middle and upper class people, as we would think of them, it was a multilingual society. So in Chaucer's world, everyone spoke multiple languages, both French and Latin, as well as English, were spoken by all educated men in Chaucer's England. Educated women would certainly have known English and French, though they were less likely to know Latin. So it was a time, I suppose, of of all kinds of dynamic change, really. And it's also a time when the English language is becoming more important, where there are a lot of merchants, a lot of trade. It's, it's not the kind of feudal hierarchy that people often imagine. In fact, the cities are real engines of change, where there's lots of mercantile life, lots of trade, lots of things going on. That's that's really fascinating. I, I didn't actually expect, expect it to be as... Um... As, as diverse as all that, actually. So that was the Hundred Years' Wars that was going on between France and England at yes, the time, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. exactly. So yeah. from about the mid-14th to the mid-15th century. Yeah, OK. Um, so what sort of literary works were around at, at that particular time? What sort of notable authors that you know Chaucer might have heard of or, or read during his time around in, the, in that sort of age? So... Chaucer's influences were mainly not English. And I think that's the a really mm. important thing to, to, to know. So he was steeped in literature, particularly literature in Latin, in French, and then crucially in Italian. So if I take those, those languages separately, so in Latin, he was aware and, and read deeply in classical authors. So people such as Virgil and Ovid, for example. But also things like Latin versions of Aesop's fables, for example, were commonly taught in schools. He also knew Latin texts written slightly later. So, for example, Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy, extremely influential Latin late antique text um, that he translated, in fact. And then French texts, so the, the most influential French text and, and an incredibly important text across Europe at this time was a text called The Romance of the Rose, written in the 12th and 13th century. So a love allegory, very long, very detailed. Um, he was also profoundly influenced by French dream vision poems, so poems about about love, about what's known as finamour, so a, a kind of courtly love, so an idealised form of love. Um, and so the dit amoureux, the, the love songs, um, by, by a range of authors, by French authors, by authors from a country called Hainaut, which is now split across French, across France and Belgium. Those kinds of poems were very important to him. So the judgment of the King of Bohemia, the judgment of the King of Navarre, those kinds of poems, poems by, by Froissart, by Jean de la Motte, by Machaut. But then what really changed English literature was Chaucer's encounters with Italian poetry. And 
so in Italian poetry, he knew Dante, he knew Petrarch, he knew Boccaccio. And these were crucial influences on him. And Chaucer travelled to Italy at least twice. He was probably chosen for those missions to Italy because he knew Italian, and most people didn't. He probably picked up that Italian from his mercantile background in London. And then while in Italy, but also while socialising with Italian merchants back in, in England, he was able to acquire Italian manuscripts. And really his encounters with things like Boccaccio's Decameron, Philostrato, Dante's Divine Comedy, these really profoundly changed both the form and content of, of Chaucer's work. Okay, well, let's turn to the man himself. And who was Geoffrey Chaucer? So I understand he was the son of a wine merchant. Yes. So his father was a wine merchant, also known as a vintner, um, John Chaucer. Um, His mother, Agnes, was also a a property owner, you know, an important person in her own in her own right. He was born in London in Vintry Ward, so that the ward which had a lot of, of wine merchants living in it. And it was an area of London that abutted the Thames, so was right next to the river. It was the ward, the area of London, that had more immigrants in it than any other area of London, which I think is really interesting to imagine this young Chaucer brought up in a place where he was hearing different languages all the time, you know, mainly European languages all around him. Lots of people from what we would now think of as Germany, France, Italy, those areas all around him. It was an area, it was near the Spice Quarter where his grandmother lived, where there were lots of pepperers who sold different spices. So he was surrounded by by smells, by languages, by all kinds of, of exciting life, street theatre, um, street punishment, royal entries, you know, lots of things like that going on. His father at one point had an appointment in Southampton as well, where the Chaucer family may have moved for a short a short period of time. But the first time the, the young Geoffrey enters the documentary record, it's a really interesting record. And we have a lot of records of Chaucer's life. And it's important to, to know that, that compared with Shakespeare, we know so much more about Chaucer. And the main reason for that is that for much of his life, he was a civil servant and the English keep good records. They're good bureaucrats. So we have a lot of records, you know, about 500 records of Chaucer's life. But the first one, it isn't about his his better known roles as a, as a diplomat and a customs officer. It certainly isn't about his life as a poet. It's about his clothes. So um, his clothes, his clothes. <laughs> so because his first job was that he was a page boy for an important great lady. So um, Elizabeth de Burr, who was married to one of the sons of Edward III. So she was married to Prince Lionel and she bought him some clothes. And that's when he first enters the record. And she's in fact buying him some extremely fashionable clothes, a very short tunic and very tight leggings to go underneath it. And these clothes were so um, were seen as so risque and outrageous that chroniclers wrote about them at the time, saying that they thought that young men wearing these clothes had brought the plague back to England as God's punishment because these boys were dressing so outrageously. And I think this anecdote's really interesting because people often think of Chaucer as the staid father of English literature, a kind of authoritative patriarch. But of course, I mean, he was actually never like that in his lifetime. That's a posthumous idea of him. But we all change across our lives. And at one point in his life, he was a fashionable teenager. (laughs) It's just the thought of a lady dressing him Mm. in these tight clothes. Just Yeah, all kinds of problematic issues there. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. So across his life, Chaucer had all kinds of interesting jobs. Um, He always worked for a living. So he wasn't someone that was 
being paid to write poetry. He worked for a long time as a customs officer. So again, on the river in London, in charge of the wool customs. So making sure that the taxes were being paid. Again, looking out on the river, really involved in that nexus of trade connections with the world. He worked as a diplomat. He One of his early jobs, in fact, he was a soldier. So he fought in the Hundred Years' War. He was taken hostage by the French. He was a prisoner of war. And then he was ransomed by the King, Edward III. He was still only a teenager when that was happening. But then he was also involved much more frequently in peace talks. He was actually a lot better, I think, at talking than at fighting. And he thought that talking was a better way of resolving things than fighting. So we much more often see him involved in diplomacy, in negotiating marriage alliances, in helping with treaties and, and truces that were happening. As I already mentioned, he went at least twice to Italy, so to Genoa, to Florence, to Lombardy, Milan, Pavia. He also went to Navarre, which is now in northern Spain, but then was an independent country. Mm. That's a really interesting trip because when he went to Navarre, it was under Christian rule, but had major and protected Jewish and Muslim communities there at the time. And what is now Spain the Iberian Peninsula at that time contained um, Muslim Muslim ruled areas as well as Christian ruled areas and substantial Jewish communities as well. So he encountered a very different kind of society there to the society that he was used to in England where the Jews had been expelled in, in 1290, so 50 years before his birth. He, another job he had was that he was uh, something called clerk of the works for the king, where he was in charge of various royal buildings, including the Tower of London. So he was in charge of the upkeep of the Tower of London. Most of his life, he was living in London. He also lived in Kent for a period of time, but North Kent, very close to the city of London. And as far as we know, he was never paid anything for his writing. He was always working for a living. And, you know, one of those extraordinary people, when you imagine them, he worked all day and then he went home and by candlelight did things like writing the Canterbury Tales. I mean, how infuriating is that? You know, <laughs> Man of many talents, obviously. So how did he get from becoming a page boy into the king's court? How did that happen? That- well, I think in a way, the more interesting question is how did he get from being a merchant son to being a page boy? Because being a page boy was a kind of stepping stone into other other roles in the royal household or royal affiliated households. But his father had had connections with the king. He'd had a job provisioning some of the king's residences with wine, for example. So it was a role called being a, a butler of the king, but it wasn't a butler as, as we would think of it. It was it, it was an important job involving provisioning. So he must have had connections with the royal family, got the young Chaucer in, into a great household. There, as part of the household, he went to war with Lionel, so the husband of his first employer, Elizabeth, went to war with him and moved up the ranks of the king's household like that. And I think then it's easy to see why such a clever, brilliant boy who was you know, clearly extraordinary in his facility with languages, with reading, with all kinds of things why he was then picked for things like diplomatic missions. But he also then formed a close relationship with John of Gaunt. So John of Gaunt was another son of Edward III's and a very important one. And Chaucer met him again when he was only a teenager um, at when he was in the household of Elizabeth and Lionel. But he formed a connection with Gaunt that lasted his whole, whole life. And while part of that was on his own terms for himself. You know, as I say, they met independently. They worked together in all kinds of ways. He was in Gaunt's household. The first long poem he wrote was about the death of Gaunt's first wife. But he also had a strong connection with Gaunt, which was much more personal, which was through his his sister-in-law. 
And so, you know, just briefly to mention Chaucer's personal life, so he was married to a woman called Philippa, um, and Ph- Philippa de Roe, and her sister, Catherine Swinford, was the long-term mistress of John of Gaunt. They had four children, um, four illeg- illegitimate children. So Gaunt had um, two other wives and then very late in life married Catherine Swinford, had all their children retrospectively legitimated by act of parliament and by the Pope. Um, but there was a clause saying that, that that legitimation shouldn't give them any right to the throne. They were called the Beauforts. Nonetheless, every monarch since Henry Tudor, since Henry VII, has derived their right to the throne through the Beaufort line, including our current monarchs. They all get their right to the throne through that illegitimate Beaufort line. Um, so John of Gaunt was closely, you know, intimately connected with Chaucer's family. And that meant that Chaucer's children were brought up really with the royal children. So and it's it's really, really interesting. There was a kind of fluid household which seemed quite often to contain Gaunt's legitimate children, including the future Henry IV, um, his illegitimate children, Chaucer's children, Catherine Swinford's legitimate children with her previous husband. They all seemed to get on fine. No one seemed to mind. I mean, the you know, it, it, they all, when you look at the connections they had in, in later life... So Chaucer had this personal connection as well, which I think really helped him across his life, that there was that personal as well as professional connection with with the royal family. Yeah, he's a lot of fascinating life. I don't remember any of this from school. I think we just focus very much on the text. So Mm. it's really interesting to sort of paint that picture of society that he, you know, he was working in at the time. Um, So would you say that a lot of his work was influenced by, the, I mean, he was obviously dipped his toes into so many different sort of social classes, didn't he? He saw yeah. from all aspects, really, didn't he? Yes, absolutely. And certainly in his writing, he is really interested in foregrounding lots of different kinds of voices. And I think you know, we can look at the literary sources he's using, but he also does very new things in his interest in mm. bringing to the fore mercantile voices, working voices, as well as voices from higher up in the social estate. And when we think of him as someone that is often kind of on the on the edges of things, you know, looking into different groups with a foot in one camp and a foot in the other. I mean, writers are often, well, they kind of have to be observers to a certain extent. And I think someone like Chaucer, it's important to think about the balance between what he's getting from written sources, which is a lot, and what he's getting from the world around him, to think about both those things. But certainly one thing that he's doing is observing, is being in courts, being in the city, being in the customs house, being in the streets, being in lots and lots of different countries, observing different societies, and you know, watching things, and then bringing that back into his work from such an extraordinary range of experiences. So Chaucer's best known for his Canterbury Tales, obviously, but what else has he written? I'm glad you asked that, because people often do only know about the Canterbury Tales. And one of the fascinating things about Chaucer is the extraordinary variety. So Chaucer wrote, so for example, he wrote four long dream vision poems, The Book of the Duchess, The House of Fame, The Parliament of Fowls, The Legend of Good Women. They all do really different things. you know. So, so one of them is a poem about having writer's block and being taken up by an eagle to these extraordinary realms out in the galaxy. And he coins the words in English, Milky Way and Galaxy 
galaxy in that poem, taking them from from the Latin. And he 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 looks at fame and the canon and tries to work out where stories come from. Another one, the Parliament of Fowls, is a a play on what current Parliament is like. This cacophony of different birds who who represent different classes and groups trying to make their voices heard. And in that poem, it's partly I think about the development of the speaker, the role of the speaker in Parliament, which happened during Chaucer's lifetime, and allows someone to speak for a whole group. So it gives you protection if you're speaking for a group rather than on your own account. He wrote Troilus and Crusade, which is a a translation adaptation of Boccaccio's Il Filostrato. So it's a a tragic romance set set in the Trojan War. He translated The Romance of the Rose from French, The Constellation of Philosophy from Latin. He wrote lots and lots of short poems, um, one of them is a complaint to his purse about the fact that he hasn't got any money and his purse is very light and he's asking the king to renew his grant. So this is after there's been a change of, of monarch and he wants to make sure he he gets his money back. There's various long kind of complaint poems, they're called, within those those short poems. He also wrote a, a scientific treatise called the Treatise on the Astrolabe, which he wrote for his 10-year-old son. He'd given him a, an instrument called an astrolabe, which helps you to, to tell the time. And the existing treatises were written in Latin, but his 10-year-old son couldn't understand them. So he wrote an English one for little Lewis. He had, he had at least three children that, that we know about, two boys and a girl. And then within the Canterbury Tales as well, there is an extraordinary variety. So that's also important to note that within the Canterbury Tales, we've got romance, we've got fablio, which is a kind of bawdy story about adultery and sex. We've got saint's life. We've got didactic stories. We've got fables. We've got sermons. We've got penitential tract. We've got parody. There are so many different kinds of stories. And again, compared to many other authors, he just did so much more, wrote in so many different forms, genres, styles. And that variety really makes him stand out, I think, amongst amongst the, the, the titans of literature. And just to wrap up, um, obviously, you know, we have to study Chaucer now in schools and, and uh, at, at university level. It, it, obviously, it was a very much of a different era there. So what are the, some of the challenges that we have now in interpreting um, Chaucer's works, you know, with the language evolving over mm. so much time? I mean, sometimes when you look at it on the on the printed page, it just looks like a completely different language to us nowadays. So what sort of challenges um, do you have when you're teaching students um, about the language? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends, obviously, on the level of of students. So for people who are um, who are very new, because often I'm in the position where I'm teaching students who've already studied Old English and earlier Middle English. But if you're coming to it completely new, I think that it's important not to be snobbish about this. If you want to start with translations to help you in, that's fine. You should definitely start with a a glossed text. So a text that has translations of difficult words at the bottom of the page or next to the lines people often find it helpful to listen to versions that they can find online or to le- or to, to read it out themselves. Often the words look different, but once you say them, you realise they are familiar words. And I think persevering with it, because again, people often say, well, I started it and I was daunted, but because they know they have to do it, they keep on with it. And actually within a few pages, they're finding, they're finding they understand so much more. So that's very encouraging because it's a quick learning curve if you do if you do stick with it. But there are also, of course, challenges, you know, in thinking about just the the difference of of society then. So there are some things that, you know, we that if you don't know the sources and so on, you don't really know where it's coming from. So the more you study it, the more rewarding that is. But there are often very different attitudes to, say, race or sex or gender that that we have to be 
be aware of and I think not be not be frightened of reading about and dealing with. You know, I always think the the answer is never not to read things because it's difficult or challenging, but to think about what was different about that society and what was the same and what assumptions do we have and where are those assumptions wrong? Because far more often our assumptions are wrong about the past than they are right. Far more often people say, wow, I didn't know that the Middle Ages was like this. I didn't expect it to be so aware of the problems facing women or to be so tolerant about X or Y. You, that's more often what people say, that they are surprised by aspects of the Middle Ages. Um, so I think, you know, the, the importance of, of, of plunging into it, not worrying if you don't understand every single word, but giving it a go and keeping going. Thank you very much. My pleasure. You have been listening to A Beginner's Guide to Chaucer. You can listen to other episodes in this series on the University of Oxford's podcast site or on Apple Podcasts. If you would like to learn more about Professor Marion Turner's work on Chaucer, then please follow the link in the description. Thank you for listening.